up. Good job. You can all be seated. Uh, and if you are on our online crew, you're part of our online service, welcome. So glad that uh, not only our virtual group community as well as our physical community, uh, thank you for joining us here this morning. Again, there's a lot of great churches in San Luis Obispo, a lot of great online stuff and content to tune into. The fact that you guys are here physically and or virtually uh, just means a lot to us, so thank you. If you're on our online crew, drop a little like note in the comments. Just let us know who you are, where you're from. And if you have any prayer requests, man, we want to know how we can be praying for you. Again, we want to make this much out of our virtual world as we can, as well as our present gathering. So I'd love to extend even an invitation to you if you are just watching. If you feel comfortable joining us in person, gather with us in person. Um, oh, you know what? One last thing I want to say before I even jump into the teaching here this morning. Um, obviously, this past week, uh, Newsom uh, created kind of another lockdown, um, and we're moving into that. I think it's supposed to be beginning tonight, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that being said, uh, the churches have had a unique loophole that we've kind of found ourselves in um, for a number of reasons, which I won't necessarily go into this moment. But um, we will continue meeting and gathering outdoors as long as we are able to. To, and hopefully at some point things may shift a little bit where we might be able to go indoors. Again, we are continuing to maintain um, the specific mandates with regard to wearing masks and social distancing. Uh, we realize obviously this is, this is an issue. There are people that have gotten sick and we want to continue to do everything that we can to protect those that are most vulnerable among us. We've said this many, many times that we truly as a church are only as strong as we are careful to maintain the strength and the welcome of those that are most vulnerable among us. It's really important for us to just recognize that. So again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for maintaining the, uh, the needed um, measures to be able to gather safely. And again, if you are online, you would like to join us, just know it's a safe space, safe place. We gather with all those uh, needed measures in mind as well. So um, if you guys like, why don't you open up your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 316. It's one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. And I would say, as I mentioned even last week, it's one of those passages in the Bible that most people, whether you are a Christian or or not a Christian, they're familiar with. When we are finished with this little Advent season, we will be then going on into a brand new teaching series, which I'm really excited. I mentioned this last week. We're going to be going through the book of First Peter. The name of that entire series, we're just going to simply call it uh, Suffering and Glory. And in essence, that's exactly what it's all about. And I can't think of a more of appropriate book for us to be going through as a church family, which is that bigger theme of how do we suffer well? How do we do it in such a way that's not only redemptive, but also honors Jesus? that we don't just simply give in to the, uh, the, the dangers, the challenges, the hardships that are all around us, but so that we can do it in a way that honors God and becomes the type of people that look more and more like Jesus every single day. So right now, I want to read uh, the passage, John chapter 316, um, and then we will look at one little phrase in this entire passage. Again, most of you are already familiar with it, but if you are not familiar with it, or if you are overly familiar with it, my invitation to you would be to just kind of ask Jesus even right now, Lord, help me to be able to hear this with new ears, to see this with fresh eyes. So let me read it to you. John 316 says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son and that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for your presence here, Lord. Your presence is our great joy, our delight. We, we love you, God. We thank you for who you are. God, we ask you now that you would just continue to reshape and transform our hearts so that we become like you. And God, as we scatter here today, that you would send us out as if we are taking up the call to follow you, to carry forth your mission in this world. So Lord, right now, use this time to make much of Jesus. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name we say, amen. So I want to look at just specifically the phrase here this morning, the second phrase. Last week, we looked at just the very first phrase, which was, but God or God himself. What I want to look at today is just this little phrase that says, uh, so loved the world that he gave. Just that phrase, so loved the world that he gave. And I want to basically break this down. Again, our time frame together is limited, so I'm going to just try to be as succinct as I can. I'm going to break this down into four things. I'm going to look at number one, the source of God's love. Secondly, the extent of God's love. In other words, how vast, how broad is God's love? Thirdly, the act of God's love. And then fourthly, the quality. What type of love is this? What does it actually look like? So let's jump in and take a look at, first of all, the source of God's Love, the source of God's love. So what we're told, first of all, that God so loved the world. That God. Now, I don't know how you think about God or how your theology kind of helps frame or shape your understanding of who God is. But what I would suggest, every single person here or online, we have what I like to think of as a God narrative. There's a, there's a story that you tell yourself about God. You have an understanding, a concept, a thought about God. The fact of the matter is, is that many of us, our understanding of God is not shaped or informed by the scripture. It's, it's helpful for us to just, first of all, acknowledge that. In other words, if we do not come to the scripture with a humble posture that just says, Lord, teach me, show me, correct me, um, remove any false notions. If we don't come with that posture, there's a very good chance that we will bring certain notions and ideological constructs to our understanding of who God is. And the way that you think about God will actually shape the way that you live. So again, I'll give you one simple example or distortion of how oftentimes this plays out. Maybe some of you have heard kind of this concept of, you know, God in the Old Testament is described as this angry, really frustrated human uh, God that just dwells up in the heavens and is looking for an occasion, opportunity to just squash or crush human, human beings. And then you come to the New Testament and you see Jesus. It's kind of like this good God, bad God type of motif. God in the Old Testament, Yahweh's angry. Jesus in the New Testament is really happy and nice and he gives food to people that need it. Opens blind eyes, helps those that are marginalized. God on the other hand is looking for uh, angles and opportunities to cast people to hell. That mindset is false. It, it doesn't synchronize with the entire uh, picture of scripture of who God is. Uh, it's, a, it's a faulty notion. Um, and the point that I would make is that the source of God's love that we see in John 3.16 is God. Again, God so loved the world. But this, this love that we're going to talk about in a moment actually originates, comes from Yahweh God. He's the source of it. Jesus himself is the one saying this. So again, if you think that there is some sort of division or good cop, bad cop motif going on between God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament, that's a faulty ideological construct that probably needs to be done away with once and for all. And instead, 
not just replaced with anything, but replaced with a theological construct that describes or sees God as a source of love. Now, does God get angry? Is God frustrated with the destruction of his plans and of his purposes and of his art? Of course he is. But that, what I want to focus on right now is what the text is giving to us, which is this information that God himself is love. God so loved. Now, again, one other last thing that I want to say before we move on to the next idea is that this idea or concept, the revelation that God so loved the world is actually within a bigger context. Now, that leads us into sort of the broader perspective of what's happening here in the story. So the beginning of John chapter 3, if you want, you can look at it. Um, it's the story that John, the apostle, is telling us about a guy by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious leader. This was a guy that was versed and well-trained in the Torah, which was the ancient Old Testament scriptures. This guy would have been recognized as a religious leader, someone that had credence or authority. He was somebody that people would go to. He was an influencer, if you want to think of it that way. And they would go to him for information. Now, what we're told in the beginning of John chapter 3 is that Nicodemus actually goes to Jesus. He's enthralled by Jesus. He's asking Jesus, now, like, who are you exactly? You seem to be like a gifted teacher from God, but who exactly are you? So what he's trying to figure out is the exact identity of who Jesus is. Again, up until this point, Jesus is doing miracles. Jesus is teaching information, not based upon like, hey, Rabbi so-and-so said this, or Rabbi so-and-so said this, or this is kind of a perspective that Rabbi so-and-so, so-and-so had on this particular. Jesus is coming basically saying, today I say to you, and that was really unique for an Old Testament teacher or even within the context of Jesus, first century. So this guy, Nicodemus, is asking Jesus, basically, who, who are you, and, and should we follow you? And if, and if you are the one that's been sent by God, um, how, how do we know this? And so in the, basically, unfolding of this story, Jesus is having this dialogue. He tell, tells him that you must be born again, that God's coming to bring a kingdom. In fact, if you want to look up something really kind of cool, I'll just kind of throw this out for you to just uh, check out a little bit later. Uh, just search out on YouTube. Um, type in uh, The Chosen. There's actually a TV program called The Chosen. Type in The Chosen and this John 3.16. It's about 10 minutes. It's totally 100% worth 10 minutes of your time. It will blow your mind. It's actually a really moving sequence of just this particular passage, John chapter 3, verse 1, all the way down to about John chapter 16 or so, 316. It's, it's awesome. It's a great um, kind of uh, portrayal or narratival portrayal of what's happening right here. But what I want you to notice is kind of climax of this, just before we get to John 316, uh, Jesus actually makes reference to this God. This God that he's about to unfold for us and tell us that for God, this God loves the world. He's not in opposition to it. He's not out to destroy it. He's not out to castigate it. He's not out to cast it off into eternal destruction. He actually loves this world. That what we are told is that this God in the Old Testament, Jesus makes reference. He says, no one has ascended to heaven, verse 13. Except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So he's making reference to himself. Verse 14, he said, and, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And what Jesus is doing is he's tapping into this really, really ancient story when the people of Israel had been freed from Egypt. They're wandering through the wilderness. And there's a situation where they find themselves in where many people are being bit by snakes. You know, that's what happens when you're out in the wilderness. And the children of Israel as a nation, they're worried. They're fearful of their lives. And God makes provision for them. 
to literally rescue them, to save them from this poison, from this destruction that they find themselves surrounded by. And so what we're told here is that God himself is the one who's intervening. Now, I don't know how you think about God, but my hope would be that your theology, your understanding of God would be a God that intervenes, that steps into your life. Right at that moment where you are surrounded by destruction and pain and loss and brokenness, this is the God that comes into your world, into your suffering, to do something about that suffering, to do something about the one who's suffering. This is the God that we're told by Jesus here in this particular story. That just as Moses lifted up the serpent because he was instructed by God to do so in order to bring about salvation, this is the same God that is now stepping back into history through his son, we're going to look at in just a moment. But his aim is to rescue and to save. So first point is that my hope would be that you would reframe or reconsider the, your understanding of God around this picture of how Jesus identifies him. Second thing is I want to take a look at the extent of this love of God. In other words, if you were to put it into a question, how far does God's love go? How far does it extend to? Another way to put it, are there any limits to which God's love basically go to one spot and then stop and say, I won't go any further? There's a boundary. There's a limit. There's a marker. Um, so in other words, to maybe help better understand that is to ask and to compare it maybe to, to ourselves. Are there any limits to your love? And I think, again, if we're honest, all of us, yes. There are some people that we would say, I would love them, I would devote myself, devote my energies to them, but to others, not so much. Again, we live in a world right now that is so extraordinarily polarized. And we're constantly being fed on this narrative that says, these are the people that are part of your tribe, and there's news channels, there's places on the internet, there's places on social media that we all tend to kind of gravitate to, that we listen to, we value those voices, and other voices that don't fit within that particular paradigm that we disregard, we disvalue. We view them as basically just horrible human beings. In other words, when it comes to the subject matter of do we love them, I, I think we would basically begin to kind of feel the edges of the extent of our love. But the question is, with regard to God, does God have limits to his love? Are there extensions to where God's love will not go beyond this? And so what we see with regard to the extent of God's love, uh, again, for God so loved the world. So he tells us, the very subject which God loves, or the object, I should say, that God loves, um, to help maybe best understand this, is an author and a scholar by guy, the guy by the name of Kelly Capick. He wrote a book called God So Loved the World That He Gave. Just listen to how he describes this. I think it's worthwhile listening to. He says, to fully appreciate the radical nature of God's active love, we must remind ourselves of what is meant by this reference to the world. This is the object, or the, the object which God is saying that he loves so much, he even loves the world. So the question is, what is the world? In John's writing, the world, the Greek word cosmos, we get the word order or cosmos from, is not normally a reference to this planet or creation in general. Although there is no doubt God's love, God loves everything that he has ever made. The world, in this context, represents people. Listen carefully. People in their fierce opposition and hostility to God. Elsewhere, John describes the world as those who, quote-unquote, hate 
Christ. John chapter 7, verse 7. In other words, the world represents us and our rebellion against God. A revolt going all the way back to humanity's origin, original fall in the, of, of God, uh, from God in the garden. So what I want you to think about is when John says, for God so loved the world, this, this object that, of God's love, to understand the extent of God's love, you've got to understand the extent of rebellion that the object that he loves has drifted from him. You guys following so far? So I want you to right now think about somebody in your life right now who has drifted so far from ideals that you hold on to. Again, it could be a family member, it could be a daughter, it could be a mom, a dad, someone that you know. And at some point you look at them and you're like, they are so far gone, so far beyond any type of relational construct that we, I can have with them. What I want you to understand, this is exactly what John is basically saying about God. God loves this world that has moved into a place of fierce opposition and hostility against him. If anything, what I would love to invite you to consider is just personalize it. The Bible actually says that every single one of us at some point in our life, even today, we find ourselves in places where our hearts have this natural bent away from God, not to him. We don't wake up in the morning typically and are just like, Lord, everything that's on your heart, I want to live out and embody today. Our hearts oftentimes drift away from God. And yet the nature that John is revealing to us of God and his love to us is that this love is so extensive, it extends even to the greatest rebel. So pause and think about that. This is one of the reasons why, especially in the New Testament, uh, the nature of the world that it represents. Uh, for example, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, do not love the world. Not necessarily do not love you know, climbing a mountain. Do not love necessarily the physical, tangible world. But the idea is don't love the world in its present state of rebellion. If that's what you hold on to, uh, another one in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, do not conform to this world. Don't let your heart be shaped by the values of this world, which again is a value of rebellion and antagonism and hostility towards God. In fact, if you want to even go a step further and just say almost every single thing we have a tendency to binge watch on Netflix as a central theme can be the hostility and derogatory approach towards God. And when we allow ourselves to be shaped by those things, it's very likely that we are being shaped in a way that is apart from God. So it's, again, doesn't say, that doesn't mean don't ever watch you know, anything. It just means that as you watch whatever it is that you watch, as you intake whatever it is that you intake, just realize there are oftentimes differing values and some of those values are, find themselves actually in opposition to God. And as followers of Jesus, what we want to do is we want to make sure that our hearts are in line with him. So what we see with regard to this love of God is that this God loves so much so. The extent of his love is actually goes all the way to even human beings that are in hostile rebellion against him. Paul, the New Testament writer, would actually put it this way in Romans chapter 5 verse 8. God demonstrates his own love to us in this, that even while we were yet sinners, Jesus died. Even while we were yet in rebellion against God, turning away from him, resistant, hostile towards him, Jesus gave himself for us. Which leads me to the third thing, is the act of love. The act of love. In other words, God does something 
Love is a verb. Love is an action. It's not just simply a word. I think we have all had people in our life that simply say certain things, and yet it doesn't get followed up by an action. And at some point, we just look at that. We're like, it's this hollow word coming out. There's absolutely no substance whatsoever to the words that you just said. We don't ever want to be those type of people. Um, and we don't ever want to represent that type of love to anybody. But if we have ever had that happen to us in our lives, where that's the type of love that we've received, you know how shallow and empty that can be. And what we see with, re, with regard to God is that God's love is not just simply a word that God just speaks. That God actually does something about this. He enters in, and this is what we celebrate on Christmas. We celebrate God actually stepping into our world, doing something about the brokenness of humanity. And then fourthly and finally, I want to think about the quality of God's love, the quality of God's love. In other words, to put it into a question, um, wh- what qualities, what does it look like? So if you think of it this way, how does God love? We're told he gives. How does God love? He gives. What does God love? Or, how does, or what, what does he give? What does God ultimately give? We're told, again, clearly within the passage, God gives himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son which we'll look at that more a little bit next week. But again, Kelly Capic says this, God reclaims everything by giving everything away. So if you think of it this way, what we've already saw last week was this nature of God, God to love. Again, we looked at the subject of who God is, how a scholar like Nicodemus and how Jesus would have understood the concept of God. We're told that God... The introductory concept of who God is is in Genesis chapter 1. It's only sort of the seminal understanding of who God is. It gets kind of built out throughout the rest of the revelation of the Bible. But at the end of the day, what we see is that uh, God is a creator of all things. So that means that everything that we are experiencing right now, tangible, intangible, feeling, the sun, uh, the cool breeze, listening to birds, listening to whatever, all of this is God's creation. So the question is, Does God have the right to just kind of basically reclaim it and take it all back? Of course he does. But here is the question is how does God actually reclaim it all? By taking it back and crushing those rebels who have usurped God's authority and brought havoc and chaos throughout it? No, actually, what Kelly Capic tells us is that God reclaims everything by giving everything away. Rather than tearing his positions from his possessions from his enemy's hands, he bestows even more on us. So that we might not perish. Just think about that. That's what we celebrate in this season. Is God stepping into this world. I'll finish with this great quote. Dorothy Sayers. uh, The great author says this. So that is the outline of the official story. Referring to the gospel. The tale of the time when God was the underdog. And that he had gotten beaten. When he submitted to the conditions that he laid down. And he became a man like the men that he had made. And the men that he had made broke him and killed him. This is the dogma that we find so dull, this terrifying drama of which God is the victim and the hero. That's fire right there. That is so good. And that's what we celebrate right now, is this image of God coming into this world to do something about the brokenness of sin. And as we close... I'm going to invite the team to come on up and they'll lead us in another song and we will partake of communion together. And why don't we all stand? And by the way, I have to apologize as we have been 
doing communion the past few weeks. Again, why don't we all stand up? Um, and if you are at home, this be your cue to go ahead and grab some, I don't know, you know, cracker and some juice or whatever. We'll partake together. Uh, some of the little cups that we've had, had some like weird floaty things floating around. And we've even had people tell us that some of the juice tasted kind of vinegary and gross. So if that was you, I don't even know what to tell you other than I am so, so sorry that the blood of Jesus that you drank was fermented and didn't taste good. Whatever. Again, it's, I'm, I'm trying to make light of it. Um, sorry about that. We, we think we solved that. Again, if we were just doing this the way that we wanted to, we would take bread and break it and give it to you. But, you know, obviously COVID, we're not able to do that right now. So um, we are doing the very best we can on our end to make sure that we can weed out any bad, faulty communion cups and or wafers that are part of this. And, you ha- and if you happen to get one, please let us know. And again, just know ahead of time. So, so sorry about that. Um, we are going to partake of communion as we do. Before we jump in, we'll just sing a song. And as we are uh, having the elements handed out, if you would not like to take one, then feel free to just let them pass by you. If you would like to partake of it, go ahead and grab one, receive it as a gift of God's grace to you. Again, not that the bread and the drink are anything um, other than a symbol that are just pointing to the great love and power of Jesus. And uh, as we partake of this, in just a moment, we'll do this together corporately. Uh, together as one, uh, we do this as a reminder that we are brought into a story. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what communion is all about. It's a way of reminding ourselves that your story is a story that's been co-opted by God. You realize how liberating and freeing that is? Our culture today has a gospel, and the gospel says you have a story, and you are responsible to make that story come true on yourself. You need to create it. You need to fabricate it. You need to make it. You need to sustain it. Do you realize how exhausting that is? The alternative is to receive the story that God's inviting you into. He's the author of it. He's the sustainer. We're the recipients of his grace. And that's what communion reminds us of. So let's tune our hearts to God. Let's just sing and we'll partake together. In the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil, I now surrender. You are breaking new ground. So I yield to you and to your careful when I trust you, I don't need to understand. Make me a vessel, make me an offering, make me whatever you want me to be. I came here with nothing, but all you have given me, Jesus, bring
to me, all you who labor and are filled with anxiety, come to me, take my yoke upon you, which is a way of inviting others to follow him. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The invitation right now is for us to come to Jesus, to think about what are those areas in our life right now that we are burdened, we filled with anxiety. The source of it might be the result of sin, sinful actions, things that we're doing, mindsets that are toxic or destructive, maybe patterns of life, things that we're just bound by. We keep going back into it daily, maybe weekly. There are these cycles of brokenness that we don't know how to get out of. And it's going to be different for every one of us. What are those cycles? What are those things that are causing you to be just tired? laden down with anxieties. Bring those to him. Right now in your own heart. Just confess those things to him. Speak them to him. Say, God, this is it. Label it. Name it. For some of you, you may have never done that. Maybe even labeling it or naming it feels shameful. But you realize speaking the truth, confessing, is exactly what John says, First John, 
we confess these things, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Confession just means labeling it what it is. You realize there's freedom and just calling it what it is. Call it out. Confess it to him. Say, Jesus, I want freedom from these things that oppress me and crush me. Just in the quietness of your heart right now, before God, speak them to him. As you've confessed those things to him, I want you to know by the authority of Scripture and the authors of Scripture, those of you who have confessed those things to God, just know that you have been forgiven and washed and cleansed. Your conscience has been set free. Receive that gift right now. And as we together, holding our hands, the cup and the bread, this is another invitation, a reminder of us to receive another narrative, another story, the gospel, God's story, to enter into that, to let that begin to reshape and redefine you. Not social media, not what your friends are asking you to be, not what your mom and dad are telling you you need to act like, and not what even anybody else, but to receive the gospel, the good news, and what God says about you, and begin to live according to his ways. There's liberation and freedom in that. So receive right now the bread and the cup, and let's partake together. I'm going to pray over us, and then I will send us out. Jesus, thank you for your great love, your compassion, your kindness. God, make us in the type of people that are like you. So as we scatter, as we leave, as we walk off the premises of this gathering, Lord, I pray that you would help us to then walk into the power that's been given to us by the Holy Spirit to live in a way that shows forth your greatness, that we would love our neighbors, that we would do good to every single person that we meet, God, that we would walk in humility and that we would show forth justice, your justice in this world. That these would become values, Lord, because they are values that you hold on to. So, God, thank you for this time together here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said collectively. Count of three. You guys say it out loud. One, two, three. Amen. Amen. All right. Grace, mercy, and peace from the Trinity God is yours, as well as to our home online audience. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you.